You know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell them about punk. What's up, posers? Welcome to Punk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley. And I'm your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. Normally, this is the show where we choose a year at random and select one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year to discuss. Today we're doing something, well, I guess we're kind of doing that, just in a different parameter. The year wasn't selected at random. We'll get into that whenever we uh, talk about the record. You can follow us on all forms of social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Punk Lotto Pod. If you head over to our Patreon, that's where you get access to all of our weekly bonus audio. This week, we're doing an I'm Listening, where we talk about the albums we've listened to over, mm, let's just say the last month, because I don't think we could talk about anything from December that's going to be super interesting. Where you get that for $1. Did I say that already? I don't know, but it bears repeating. It's just a dollar. <laughs> And if you want to open up your wallet a little bit wider and give us $10, you get to choose what album we talk about on the show, which has been really fun. We got one of those coming up soon, and uh, it's a left field selection. I'll say that. That is patreon.com slash punk lotto pod. We have a voicemail line, 202-688-PUNK. Call us, leave us a voicemail. And yeah, I think that's all the plugs out of the way. So, Dylan, you were about to say something. So today we're doing something a tiny bit different. I'd been thinking about over the last few weeks having to kind of come up with ideas and different things to kind of pitch for my internship and for my program at school. I've been having to come up with a lot of different ideas. And the idea of anniversaries really hit me to the point where I was like, man, people like talking about big anniversaries. And so it got me thinking, well, what... What punk records can have anniversaries? What are good anniversary years? Uh, 30 years, 25, 20, 10, any lower than that. People don't really pay too much attention to or care that much. And then I was like, well, okay, what's the biggest anniversary that people usually care for? That 50th anniversary? It's like, well, punk technically is not 50 years old, depending on what you call punk. Personally, I say punk as a genre began with the Ramones in 1976. That's kind of how we've always felt whenever we talk about punk on this show. I guess there's the debate of punk as punk as a genre decided by musical qualities. And a lot of times people argue that goes back to the very early days of rock and roll. And there are certainly influences that go that far back into what we would typically call punk. Uh, but then I think there's also like punk as a movement, punk as an art movement, even. That's that's firmly late seventies. That's definitely uh, New York CBGB's uh, punk scene simultaneous to the UK punk scene, mm-hmm. where people are saying we're doing punk. <laughs> yeah, punk as a subculture really didn't exist. I don't think until I'd say seventy six with the Ramones. It was that was record was even kind of late in the year too. So it is essentially seventy seven is the year the punk blew up. But so yeah, I was like, okay, well. 50 years what what even could have come out in 50 you know 50 years ago that we would have 
considered even talking about. And we'd actually been talking for a while about doing something proto-punk related because there are a lot of artists who get tagged proto-punk. You know, you have your New York Dolls, you have your, you know, Patti Smiths and the MC5, like all these bands that you would have been retroactively tagged as proto-punk. Obviously, at the time, they weren't calling it proto-punk because punk wasn't a thing yet. So it's a retroactive labeling, obviously. They were probably thinking they were more of a garage band or a psych band, usually. Usually, yeah. And they weren't even, you know, they weren't calling themselves punk bands. They weren't calling themselves punks. Um, I mean, punk is like a term for a young person who plays music kind of existed loosely uh, in like kind of like a, a garage rock and like a you know a specifically non uh beat Beatles influenced rock <laughs> yeah capacity but I've seen the Doors thrown around as a proto punk band too and I don't I don't I wouldn't call their music proto punk but maybe them as stage personas and provocateurs you could get a little bit of that yeah I think the Doors get kind of that inclusion because of how distinctly influential they were to people like Patti Smith and bands like television and the damned, even um, the stranglers definitely had a big doors influence. Uh, you know, they were definitely very influential to punks, but I don't think that they made music that really even only a handful of songs I feel like really come sonically that close to it. But, you know, Jim Morrison as a frontman and a vocalist is like, he's screaming on a lot of those <laughs> songs. I mean, he really is just yeah, r- ripping his throat out in some of those performances. So it's it's almost there. Yeah. Who um was Death? Death have also been called a lot the the what first punk band. Isn't that what people love to say? People say that and it's so they say it because they want to be able to have that hot take of saying that. (laughs) But what death did was very much the same thing as what the MC5 was doing, what the Stooges were doing. I mean, they were from Detroit. Sonics were doing prior. Yeah. Yeah. Death were they started in 71. Three brothers. And they also very, very quickly moved past it. <laughs> but yeah, and also, again, they're not the first one because, you know, 71 is when they formed. And they're what that first death record. What, what was that? That was 75. A single. Yeah. And so, like, if you're if you're putting it close to like closer to the 77 era of punk, I don't feel like it even works. It's a cool story for a documentary. I mean, it was a good documentary. Uh, the story's neat. Their music's good. You know, they just weren't. They didn't really. I feel like he was like, yeah, the first punk band. It's like, but, you know, like people had to have listened to it and like been influenced by it, I think, to really kind of tie in with that. Yeah. And I mean, the modern lovers were recording stuff earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, Kick Out the Jams came out in 68 or was recorded in 68, released in 69. You know? Yeah. You ever listen to the MC5? <laughs> There's your first punk band, really. They were I mean, punk. and the people have always been like, oh, the Velvet Underground. I'm like, eh, they're a psych band with a lot of folk elements. So I was curious. I was like, okay, 1973, 
we looked at it and we're like, hey, that's a big record. We could talk about that one. What else was that year? And uh, if we're going by Rate Your Music's genre tags of proto-punk, the only other one you get is the New York Dolls, the self-titled New York Dolls record, the very first one. And I listened to it this week just to have reference for what else was happening at the time. And they're a very different type of proto-punk band in the sense that they're just a glam rock band with a little bit more of a swagger and maybe less production. It's glam on a budget, really. It's a glammed up Rolling Stones. Yeah, it's very Rolling Stonesy, very Bowie. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's neat. Honestly, though, the album itself is kind of boring and long. It's like a 45 minute record. But Trash is on there and Trash rules. Trash is a really good song. And Jet Boy is this, is important just for the fact that every every punk band decided to have a Jet Boy, Jet Girl type song. But like if you look at anything else that's tagged proto punk from that year, it's uh, pink fairies and uh, colored balls and third world war and hurricanes. But they're all blues rock. It's a, that's like kind of their main thing or a psych rock band. So, yeah, I've never heard of any of these bands. Hurricanes are from Helsinki, Finland. So <laughs> very funny. But before we get into the record, what let's look at the the greater 73 scene do you just want to do you just want to do overall yeah let's just pull the overall charts and and see what the big records are of 73 dark side of the moon by pink floyd yeah <laughs> houses of the holy led zeppelin aladdin sane by david bowie you know these are these are what's happening we have metal metal is established already black sabbath early sabbath bloody sabbath yeah sabbath is on their fifth record in 73 wild yeah, lots of um, there's a Genesis album, The Who, I guess if we're looking punky related stuff, there is a Lou Reed record, Berlin, as well as a Roxy music album for your pleasure. But we got Wings and Nelton John and <laughs> another David Bowie record, Pinups. Psych, Psych's a thing. Psych's a big thing. Yes, put out Tales from the Topographic Ocean, Oceans. Prague is big. Yeah. And that was always the so whenever we're, you're first getting into punk as a teen and you start like watching documentaries about punk music, by the way, so many of them are so bad, but they all kind of go start from the same jumping off period of, well, you had to be like a music student and you had to have no music theory to like play music like you had to be Emerson, Lake and Palmer you know, or Yes, or one of those bands, or Kansas, you know, like all these bands that took, you had to have a crazy amount of skill to write that kind of music. But I would really push back against that, because, like, glam was still pretty big, and it's pretty simple, you know? Yeah, there's certainly, like, an expectation of musicianship in the 70s. Even for rock bands, there's, you know, you tended to have, like, a lead guitar player, or you know, even the ones that, you know, maybe bring in keys or something like that usually end up, you know, they have someone who's like pretty technical in that regard. So there's not. Yeah, there's certainly not like garage level musicians making records for labels in the 70s. So I can see where I can kind of see where that philosophy or that argument is coming from. But I think it gets I think it gets too focused on like the prog 
side of things because there's definitely stuff that's not prog. There's definitely like country rock and boogie rock and stuff that like, you know, someone who practices practices their instrument but doesn't have a music degree can write and play. But but yeah, I think there was an attitude from a lot of early punks that they didn't want to practice. <laughs> yeah. Because really a lot of the stuff that the early punks were drawing from, like in the United States, it was a lot of like the garage rock bands or at least the like early 60s rock bands that were pretty rudimentary, you know, or, you know, your Chuck Berries, you know. But then there was in the UK, you know, they were they were pulling from the pub rock scene, which was just another kind of rootsy, bluesy based rock music. I don't know. Music was a little bit more varied, but also, you know, in 73 before up to like 77, you're kind of limited by wherever you lived. So like whatever was big, where you lived was probably all you were going to hear unless like you just like saw something on Ed Sullivan or, you know, uh, some sort of performance show that would have existed back then or, Whatever yeah, radio you, you know, could pick old up, whistle test. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever radio you could pick up. And I imagine I I always put myself in like where I am currently. If what, you know, in 1973, what what could I even have listened to? I guarantee you it was like all country stations in the area. Some gospel, of course. And what else? There might have been if you were lucky, there might have been a station that played like soul or something or R&B or something like that. But maybe a lower wattage you know you might not consistently get that signal were we still am in the set in 73 well you'd have fm but fm was very much the album oriented rock yeah i imagine if you were in a city you would get that kind of stuff just like like i said where i currently live if i turned the radio on i guarantee you i would have only heard (laughs) country and gospel yeah uh maybe if i was in charlotte i could pick up some uh yeah one of those fm rock stations that are like and we put on the whole side of pink floyd's dark side of the moon but yeah so there is this one record that we're talking about today and that is raw power by iggy and the stooges on the band the stooges formed in ann arbor michigan in 1967 they are considered the godfathers of punk or at least the quintessential proto-punk band they played a garagey hard rock that was very influenced by blues and psychedelia and they released their debut self-titled album in 1969 as well as their follow-up funhouse in 1970 this album, released February 7th, 1973 on Columbia Records. The personnel is Iggy Pop on vocals, James Williamson on guitar, Ron Ashton on bass, 
and Scott Ashton on drums. And the album was produced by David Bowie and Iggy Pop. There is a story that goes behind this record, but I want to save that for later. Walk me through your Stooges experience. Hmm. You know, so the Stooges are a band that for most of my knowledge of them, my awareness of them has been a clinical appreciation. I want to say we would have heard the Stooges as young teenagers getting into punk and seeing the proto punk category and the records and the bands that people discussed and talked about as being influential to punk or being kind of really early punk. Uh, and so the Stooges were the most appealing of those. Um, I kind of knew who Iggy Pop was separate from the Stooges. I knew of him as an entity that existed uh, beyond the band that he came from. Uh, certainly was familiar with the Lust for Life uh, song being in <laughs> Carnival Cruise commercials. So they were probably the easiest of the proto-punk bands to like really look into. But I remember thinking, like I remember, I want to say my first real substantial listening listening to the Stooges was you getting Funhouse from the library. Yeah, I, that was going to be my entry point as well, because I, like you said, the, you're like, the Stooges were important. Iggy Pop is a person that is a thing and a singer, I guess. <laughs> Actor sometimes. Uh, but like not not really diving too deeply into the Stooges prior to that, other than hearing like I Want to Be Your Dog or something like that. A TVI, you know, one of those big songs. And so, yeah, the first album I listened to was Funhouse. And it was some remastered, probably the like early 2000s remaster i guarantee you it's probably the 30th anniversary now that i think about it they probably did it in like 2000 well i don't know because in the liner notes jack white did the liner notes and so it would have been right after the white stripes blew up so maybe it was a little later than that but uh yeah funhouse was my first stooges record and it rules it was a but it was a record that i was like this is interesting i remember mm-hmm. just like listening to that record and kind of like really struggling to connect with it in like, I want to listen to this all the time. It was more like, this is very interesting to hear. Uh, so, so the Stooges never were that band. They didn't have that. I never, I didn't have that Stooges phase. You know, I didn't go like, oh, I listen to the Stooges. Like I'm a true punk. Like <laughs> if there's a proto punk band that I was ever like, I'm fucking into this. It was MC five. Um, yeah. Kick Out the Jams is definitely like a mind blowing record, <laughs> especially when you think listen to it in context of, oh, released in 1969. Oh, this is wild. The Stooges were honestly were too arty for me that early. Definitely on like Funhouse and the first record, they're much more psychedelic and jam kind of influenced than on this album. But there was this just like heaviness. And just like, what is this like thickness to Funhouse? But it's it's funny because like personally, I don't know. I never turned that interest in the Stooges into much more than like, yeah, I'll check out some Iggy Pop stuff. I never became a huge Iggy Pop guy either. Like that mainly probably because his, his discography is so inconsistent from front to back. Yeah, it's really hard to be a ride or die Iggy pop fan. <laughs> he's 
as a personality, he's supremely entertaining. Like he's great, you know. And I think that's what he's kind of been riding off of for decades at this point. Though he'll occasionally he'll throw out an album that becomes a little touchstone. Like I feel like every five to ten years you get like, hey, that Iggy Pop record was notable. Like what was that? That post depression was like the last one that was like that. Yeah. He has he has one that came out this year. It's not bad. It feels very 80s sounding, like 80s Iggy, which is weird. But yeah, he'll do stuff like that one record that's like all in French. He sings the, <laughs> like all French ballads and then he does weird records like Brick by Brick was like his 90s alternative record. But then after that, he did. Is it Little Caesar or something like that? And I don't know. He's just all over the place. So like, yeah, you're right. It's it's hard to be like, oh, yeah, I've listened to every Iggy Pop record. And then because then you would just go. I don't think he's that good. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a little story that goes into this record. The band broke up in 1971 due primarily to the band really getting into heroin. Like, yeah, all of them except Ron or Ron Ashton. He was the only one who like was like, I wasn't into heroin, but I also think he was drinking a lot. Um, So, you know, so he could hang. But their shows were awful. During that period, like Iggy couldn't even stand up during performances and Funhouse didn't do well for Electra. And so Electra was like, we're dropping you. We're done. So during that, the band just broke up. They're like, all right, we're done. During that time, Iggy had met and become friends with David Bowie because Bowie was like playing in Detroit, I think, or something somewhere around there. So he went to the show, met with him, hung out, became friends. I think he became part of the Bowie entourage is how it was described, which is weird to think. Cause at that point, most people wouldn't have been super aware of Iggy pop. So they're just like, who's that guy? Who's that skeleton in a mop over there? But <laughs> Bowie was instrumental in getting him a new management team. And then that management team scored them a record deal with Columbia. So Iggy brought Stooges guitarist, Jesse Williamson to England and they were going to try and form a British Stooges. Basically, they're just going to be like, Iggy and James were going to start a new Stooges in England. And it would just they weren't having any luck finding anybody. And then finally, like, I think it was James recommended. He's like, why don't we just bring Ron and Scott over, the Ashton brothers? And so they're like, OK, let's do that. So they brought him over. They had to record in London. I guess he, I guess Iggy wanted to be hanging out with Bowie. And the one big difference is... Prior to the band breaking up, Ron was a guitar player and James was the second guitar player because they had added a second guitar player and then James joined, replacing the previous second guitar player. But on this record, they were like, no, Ron, you're going to play bass. And Ron was like, what? <laughs> I don't I don't want to be the bass player. I wrote like those two records like I don't like this. So he was mad that he's not playing guitar and he's been relegated to bass. And so, yeah, they record the record. And it it has like another like it has another problem with it. But I'll save that. So with the knowledge that this is essentially, yes, it is four members who were on the previous, maybe three members. I'm not sure if James was actually on Funhouse, but um, it's essentially still the Stooges. But you took the guitar player and made him go play, you know, bass. And this other guy started writing songs. This feels like a different record or a different band. Yeah, James Williamson was not on Funhouse. This is his, the first record with the Stooges uh, okay. playing guitar. It's a very different band, even though mm-hmm. there's 
three of the same members. Uh, and that's it's an entirely James Williamson. He brought to the band, I think, a kind of focus and a rock song craft that they didn't really have prior because they had been an experimental, very jammy band when they started out. I mean, the thing the thing about the Stooges is they started out as a improvisatory drone band like (laughs) they were doing full-on art psych noise they were using like prepared instruments and like you know like not real instruments they were (laughs) doing these really messed up things um iggy was playing feedback you know (laughs) finding different ways to create feedback uh through a microphone uh when they started it's such a baffling thing that they even got signed to Electra Records because they didn't really have songs when they got signed. <laughs> and they just got signed on the coattails of MC5 because MC5 was kind of like a sure thing. Like they were a lock. They were a huge band in the scene. The, you know, A&R guy comes and sees them and sees the Stooges and he's like, oh, these people are artists. <laughs> <laughs> so they call in the label heads. And the label heads are like MC5. Yeah, that's an easy that's an easy get. This is a rocking band that can play some tunes. Um, they've got stage presence. Uh, and for some I don't know why, but they were just like, yeah, this this will work. I guess we can mold this into a band. <laughs> so the fact that, you know, the Stooges only really ever started writing songs out of like, oh, shit, like we've been like pretending and now we have to <laughs> now we have to do this for real. We have to make something that someone's going to actually want to listen to. So they kind of like barely knew how to do that. Like Ron could write riffs and Iggy, Iggy from the beginning kind of had like the most like songwriting sensibility. He had like, I, I guess he had the ability to take what everyone else was doing and kind of mold it into some form, some kind of form for a song. Like he understood chord progressions more or less. And he definitely was able to be like he understood like how to make vocals and melodies dynamic. It's it's really interesting to think of Iggy Pop as not being really a instrumentalist, but he was previously a drummer. Uh, I know he wrote stuff on piano and really early on. He had like a really super cheap acoustic guitar that he would use to like kind of just at least work out the chord progressions. So he was really like. He was really almost kind of like the composer of the band on those first two records, kind of structuring things. But then you bring in someone like James Williamson and he's like clearly knows how to write songs and arrange songs and can write guitar riffs. And uh, especially if you listen to like the the collaboration he did with Iggy later, uh, the Kill City, the, the post Stooges record that they recorded that became an Iggy Pop solo record. You can you can see that. You can see that through line from Funhouse to that record, like very, very clearly, especially with songs like uh, songs like Gimme Danger, the less like rocking songs. Yeah, because like Search and Destroy feels like it feels like that one could have been on the previous records, but not much else on this album really feels like that would have gone on those albums or any of those songs would have gone on those albums. Search and Destroy fits in with I Want to Be Your Dog and and. TVI is kind of like the big Stooges hits. And honestly, Search and Destroy might be the best Stooges song, period. 
But then the rest of this record features so much just like, oh, I think they're trying to make a Bowie record. It's kind of how I feel when I I mean, Bowie's involved with the album. He's listed as a producer, but I don't I don't know how involved he is. I think that's just more of a he was there. story yeah that goes with Ooh. this record so this record is viewed uh many people say man david bowie really made this record sound bad that's that was the takeaway that a lot of people had because when you listen to this album next to funhouse or the self-titled it's so quiet the mix is atrocious it's it's a bad mix of a record now the backstory on that is Iggy mixed it first. He mixed it and he didn't know what he was doing. So he put all of the instruments in one stereo channel and all of the vocals in the other stereo channel. And he had no balance whatsoever. He wasn't focused on tone or anything like that. To me, it was like Iggy doesn't know what he's doing and he's mixing the record. And he gave it to the label and the label was like, we're going to have David Bowie mix this. Yeah, they were like, absolutely not. You can't have the whole band in one ear and you in the other. (laughs) Like the extent of the mixing that he would do was like turn up the lead guitar. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a matter of just like listening and turning up, listening and turning down. Like that was just like how he did it. Like the band is up. The band is down, you know. So the funny story is when Iggy's like, "Okay, yeah, I get it. (laughs) I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, he brought, he brought the tape to David Bowie is how the story goes. And it's like a 24 track tape and he gives it to David Bowie and David Bowie goes, all of the band is on one track. The vocals are on another and maybe some lead overdubs are on a third track. He said three of the 24 tracks were, that was all that was there. The rest were blank. And so he just did the same thing. Iggy did. All right, I'm going to turn it up, turn it down. Like he added some effects as far as reverb and delay and that kind of stuff. But with what he had, he's like, here it is. Finished project product. Yeah, they I remember I read something that said they were at like an old studio. Mm hmm. Um, like an Elvis style studio is how Iggy said it. Yeah, he said that it was an Elvis board. Uh, so as he did, they go to a studio that had like what, like one of the old consoles with like the big knobs on it. <laughs> like you can't you couldn't do you couldn't really do any actual panning or, you know, mm-hmm. fading. And yeah. So so the three tracks 
of 24 thing is like kind of disputed because mm-hmm. that I I haven't seen it, but I read that in the Gimme Danger documentary, they like demonstrate that those tracks are all used. They're on there. So so there was some sort of like technical limitation that happens when Bowie gets it and he can't figure out how to get everything Somehow everything is just summing to three tracks, maybe. So it's, it's, not, the, it's not clear exactly what happened, but though the the thing I read, I haven't watched the documentary either, though I probably that probably been a good one to watch actually to get a feeling for it. But they said, yeah, the twenty the twenty four tracks are there, but maybe Day, uh, Bowie was just wrong, confused, like he messed up, or he was given a mixed down version that only consisted of like three tracks. Yeah. And yeah. so that's all he had to work with. And he, so he so he was already at a dis. I like the idea of him being like, I could see that. I could see Iggy bringing him. I don't know what I got and just like giving it to him. And he's like, it's just three tracks here. What am I yeah. supposed to do with this? And he's like, I'll do what I can. <laughs> I could see that happening. They, well, they would. Yeah, well, they would have had no time to be like, no, is this really the master? Where are the like? <laughs> Cause I, and I can just see Iggy just being like, oh, I don't know. And he just took the same three track mix down that he had, just not knowing that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, truly, like, no one really knows what happened there. It's also entirely possible that David was like, I don't care. <laughs> He's like, this isn't my record. Uh, what do you want to do with this, James? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, because also, like, Bowie was known for using like the most state of the art technology that he could in like recording. And he was disappointed with the setup that they were using. So even then he's probably like, I can't even do anything with this, the, yeah. the setup. Like what, what is this? And they put me in the cheapest studio they possibly could. So he's like, <laughs> what am I going to do? I've got this weird thing that makes it <laughs> an echo sound that I can use. And that's it. And I'm sure he was also like, def- it seems also like there's some level to which he was trying to defer to Iggy to be like, well, what you wanted to do with this record, like, mm-hmm. I want to try to, like, maintain some of that. Yeah. So, like, fans at the time, Stooges fans at the time, were not happy with the mix. They were just like, what? What is this? Bowie ruined them. Like, that's kind of the takeaway that people had. So then Columbia in 1996 asks Iggy Pop, like, Hey, you want to try and remix this? You know, like people have always complained about, you know, the mix, but even though it's a beloved record, like it did turn in, despite being complained about the mix, it was a beloved record. The earlier, the early punks, this is how I read it was the very early punks, like your Mike Watts were like first two albums. That's it. But then like the other people who jumped on later are like raw power is amazing. It's an incredible record. Like that's my favorite. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who, Sight yeah. Raw Power is their favorite. Like, specifically, like, huge names. Um, well, Henry Rollins has Search and Destroy tattooed on his back. <laughs> yeah. I think he said it's his second favorite, though. Yeah. Uh, Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols said he learned how to play guitar by taking speed and playing along with Raw Power. <laughs> I don't know how that makes you learn how to play guitar. Super focused. <laughs> Johnny Marr of the Smith says it's his favorite album. Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth says it's his favorite. Kurt Cobain says Rob Power is his favorite all throughout his journals. Um, Nikki Six says this is his favorite. 
and John Frusciante, Red Hot Chili Peppers, like they all are like, this is my favorite. But then like Mike Watt, you know, uh, I forget who the, one of the other punks was that like, oh, Jay Masses, because they because Jay Masses and Mike Watt did a band with Ron Ashton where they just did the first two albums of Stooges covers. Yeah, they were like the first two. They, obviously, it's because there's a different writer and the other guitar players in your band. But so it, it has this legacy of being like, it's a classic. It's a it's a brilliant record. And it, but still, everybody's like, it still sounds like shit. So Columbia was like, okay, Iggy, you want to remaster it? And he goes, or remix it? And he's like, yeah, I want to fix the problem. And he made a whole new problem. He's like, I want this to be the loudest record ever. So he just maxed out the volume on <laughs> on the whole album, causing like digital distortion all over the record. Like there's clipping and everything. And he and then everybody Ron Ashton said, he's like, yeah, we all used to complain about David's David Bowie's mix and we were how much we hated it and how bad it was and how awful it sounded. And then when Iggy's came out, we we're like, hey, David's mix wasn't that bad because they just hated how he how Iggy again. I don't think Iggy knows how to mix a record. Why are they letting him do this? Yeah. Yeah. He's really never been known for ever mixing any other records other than. <laughs> fucking up this record twice <laughs> he messed it up twice because yeah he literally this is the remixed version of raw power that he did is like it's like negative four like it's like the most <laughs> it's like the absolute loudest thing ever like least dynamic range of any rec- <laughs> release commercial release that's ever been put out and then they said they also said uh i want to say ron said also he all he did was turn everything up until it was clipping and put back every single uh and grunt <laughs> and vocal line that he had recorded that David took out for being unnecessary. <laughs> just put all of that shit back in. And then, like, yeah, he complained about he's like he took off all the like effects off the guitars, too. And like yeah. how David's like kind of masterful because he's like, yeah, the guitar will just like abruptly stop. You know, which is how a, how a raw record sounds when you don't have a, any like reverb on it. You're just like, oh, no, no, you need to treat this album before you can <laughs> before you can hear it. Took out all of the panning and the fading that. Yeah. That David like miraculously did. And really like listening to the two mixes, cause I did actually listen to both mixes and I was like, oh, yeah, David is far more. It's more dynamic. There's more reverb on stuff. There's more effects. It's just a lot quieter, and that is the biggest problem with it. Whereas Iggy's mix is it's just loud. I mean, it, it captures the live feel, I guess. Like that's the benefit of that version. You can listen to both; they're both listenable for sure. There is another cut called the Rough Cut, which is the pre-David Bowie cut that Iggy did. That was like released in like '93 or '94 on CD. Um, no, it's called Rough Power. That's what it's called. It's rough. It sounds like a boombox recording, like. It, and like the panning that's what it is like the fading is just like oh nope you just turned it down like it, it it's very badly badly recorded so i get why they're like please someone fix this and uh i think i don't know what version is on spotify there's another there's a 2010 remaster of the david bowie version that's the oh. legacy legacy edition yeah but then there was like a record store day exclusive version that has it's like a box set of both rem- a remastered version of both David Bowie's 
mix and Iggy Pop's mix. And they said Iggy's mix, they just fixed the clipping. They That's really the all clipping. they could do. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be curious to hear those. I don't know which versions. I ass- Well, we know the Legacy Edition is the Bowie remastered version. And man, even remastered is a very quiet record, but... I don't know what that Iggy Mix version is that's on Spotify. That could just be the 97 CD reissue version. But it is funny how it's just like, this is our most experimental and dynamic record, and it sounds the worst out of all three. talk about some of the actual songs so like i said up top search and destroy that's a stone cold classic that is unbelievable it's one of the songs that i've it's been covered dozens of times and all the covers are pretty good like dead boys sex pistols red hot chili peppers Soundgarden, def leppard ministry florence and the machine those are all versions that i could find on on uh spotify my personal favorite is the cursed version that came out on that little seven inch that they did it the emmanuel version that was on the tony hawk underground soundtrack where they took all classic punk songs and had new emo bands cover them they're all good there's there's not really a, like a outright bad version of search and destroy it this is it's one of those songs that transcends the artist it's one of those songs that is just it's such a if you play the riff and you sing those lines you can't fuck up because like <laughs> it's just such an like primordial riff like mm-hmm. it is just pure unfettered rock and it's it's like a two-part riff like it's the da da which is such a great chunky rhythm like instinctual riff and then it leads up into the solo the lead guitar part that <laughs> that walk up and it's so like it's so satisfying no matter how you like you could play that on any instrument like and it works you have that chunky crawl and it climbs up and it's catchy i mean the the vocals are just so catchy yeah it's like one of the most singable stooges songs like now i want to be your dog is like kind of weird he's he does like a weird stilted vocal delivery he could sing tvi a little bit but it's just a very repetitive tvi on you line over and over and over again this one's like the most like, hey, we got the we know the verse to this song. Yeah. Like everybody knows the street walking cheetah with a heart full of napalm. Like, you know. Yeah. 
we've got the, we've got more to chew on than the one phrase that gets repeated over and over again. Yeah. Which it isn't, you know, is kind of like an Iggy Pop, you know, songwriting, lyric writing hallmark of like very simple lyrics and which I, I've read. I just I read last night that he did that very intentionally early on um, because he saw what he saw rock songwriters trying to do or songwriters in general trying to do was people writing too many words, just like pages and pages of lyrics trying to be Bob Dylan and not being able to be Bob Dylan. And he was like, nah, just pick two words and say them, (laughs) you know, just, just repeat it. And that's a song like, so there's, there's an intentionality to it that isn't just like, I don't know what else to say. It's say, just sing it again. There's, <laughs> there's something to that that I do really admire, but he gets a little more, yeah, substantial in his writing on Search and Destroy. So the record has two, I think they called them ballads. They're not really ballads. They just have acoustic guitar on them and they're slightly slower. Um, Gimme Danger, which is the second track, and then I Need Somebody. They both start acoustically, which were label mandated. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, the yeah, they said like we'll do another rec- we'll do this record. Uh, you gotta have two ballads. <laughs> and that was their version of ballads. Yeah, it's like we'll fool the le- the record execs. We'll just put the acoustic guitar on the front, and then they they won't finish the song. They'll stop listening. They'll. <laughs> So I think Gimme Danger is like it's one of the bigger songs in their discography. It's it's one of the well-regarded one of the most well-regarded songs in their discography. It's a good song. Like it's um what is it? What is is it a xylophone on this record? I don't see any credits for a xylophone. So what is that? That chimey sort of I assume it's just some kind of percussion. I don't think it's piano. Iggy plays piano is credited as playing piano on Gimme Danger and Raw Power. Um, I'm trying to remember what it sounds like. It might have been a Wurlitzer or Rhodes. Mm. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a chime, not an acoustic piano. Would have that song though. Gimme Danger especially feels like the most David Bowie song on the album. And he plays Celesta on Penetration, uh, which Celesta would be like electric organ. So is it only or, on penetration? Oh, that, no, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, not a, it's Celesta is the it's the ding, ding, ding. It's the it's the Suspiria. Um, <laughs> yeah. Doodly, 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 doodly. Uh, yeah. Nutcracker uses it a lot. <laughs> OK, is it on Gimme Danger, too? It probably is. That's on penetration. Uh, it's oh, they're only crediting piano on Gimme Danger. But it, from what I remember, it sounds like um, probably a Rhodes. Because it sounds similar to the the same thing that's on Penetration. Penetration, um, this is one of those whisper songs <laughs> that I feel like Henry Rollins was like, I'm going to do that whenever I do slip it in or not slip it in. But like when Henry does those whisper songs, he's doing Penetration, which and everybody like points that song out as being from reviews from the time period. We're like, that's the worst song on here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It um when it came on, I was like, oh, yeah, there it is. That's the (laughs) Stooges that I don't like. (laughs) Yeah, it's that it's that instinct in the Stooges and Iggy Pop. That's always like comes up from time to time. And you're like, "Mm, I wish you wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Your pretty face is going to hell. That's another faster tune on here. But he's doing this weird, I'm singing like this kind of voice on that song that doesn't sound like any of the other songs on here. So this song would have been great if you didn't choose that voice to do. People love it, but his his voice takes me out of that one. I I that one too though felt very glammy. Like I feel like oh yeah, Kiss probably heard this song and we're like oh yeah, that's cool. We'll do that. I do like the title track. It has a little groovy riff to it, the fun little piano and some good leads. I need somebody's kind of forgettable. I like Shake Appeal. That's the one with the hand claps and a big guitar riff. And the final song is Death Trip. Which is kind of like a mid-paced tune. So how does it relate? Like, how does this, as an album, where does this rank with the other Stooges records for you personally? I'm trying to decide. I'm actually going to say it's my least favorite Stooges record. That's where I'm at, too. Because I even went through the first two again just to be like, all right, let me let me see. Because I, I just to... like what they do better on those records. Yeah, I had to look at the track listing on the first record, but... It's 1969. Mm-hmm. I want to be your dog. No fun. Yeah. And then Funhouse is such a monstrous record. I mean, it's just such an interesting statement for the band. So, yeah, Raw Power really is the most desperate record. Mm-hmm. There's this there's a feeling through it. And maybe it's just knowing the story going into it of like, we got to get this band going. We've been dropped. We're on another label we managed to somehow trick another label another <laughs> big label into putting us out maybe even technically a bigger label actually yeah yeah they fill up um because <laughs> if electra's not selling your records man why would columbia take the chance and maybe it's just being through the association of being friends with bowie and it makes sense honestly with the band being reunited the way they are with a different guitarist uh switching ron t- to base um it does make sense why this was sold as iggy pop and the stooges Mm -hmm. yeah it is it has the distinction of being not just a stooges record but yeah iggy pop and the stooges which is you know kind of like well who who is iggy pop i mean (laughs) yeah but so and so and their band was you know not an uncommon naming conceit Though that's typically like something that got used for like actual singer songwriters where it was like (laughs) the guy whose name is first is the one who's actually writing all of the songs. (laughs) Whereas even on even on Raw Power, they're still fairly collaborative, you know, within the band. Which, by the way, did you know where his name came from? What his name is like? It's like two different nicknames. It is together. It's two nicknames. Iggy, he was called Iggy because he was in a band called the Iguanas. And so, like, they were calling him Hey Iggy because he was in the Iguanas. And then he was also called Pop because he resembled someone in the town, a degenerate in the town or something is how they described it. So, like, hey, look, it's Pop. You look just like Pop. And so they just started. And then when they started the Stooges, he was like, I'll be Iggy Pop because people call me both things. He wanted a he wanted a stage name too specifically mm-hmm. like he was influenced by uh what was the motivation there was someone specifically that he was like I want to have a stage name like them and I can't I can't remember who that was now but it might have been MC5 actually because they all had you know kind of had stage names and nicknames yeah it was after seeing the MC5 
Yeah. So he started using that name. What were their names? I don't even remember. I just know their names. Wayne Kramer. (laughs) The Fred is Sonic. Yeah, Um, Sonic Smith. I don't see any other nicknames, though. I guess they were, like, Wayne was always, like, Brother Wayne. Yeah. It was probably what they were calling each other on stage more so than what they were calling each other in the liner notes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely was like, hmm, this might be my least favorite Stooges album. I mean... Excluding the later two Stooges records, which I didn't listen to the weirdness, but I did listen to the other one. It's okay. And I think not to dismay James Williamson, because I do think he is a good guitarist and had potential as a songwriter. I think you can see that what they were going for done better on Kill City. Um, But I think it's a big, big mistake moving Ron from guitar Mm -hmm. to bass. Yeah. Because his guitar playing is so important to those first two Stooges records. Which yeah. he d- was disgruntled about being moved to bass uh, at the time. But I think there's a there's a funny interview or with Iggy Pop where he says Ron called him at some point and was like, hey, I was listening to the uh, raw power. And, you know, I'm I am my own favorite bass player. <laughs> because he's a good bass player i mean he is a good bass player too like (laughs) having you know been a guitarist switching to bass he's playing more like a guitarist plays the bass but so the album turns 50 do you think the only thing i've seen there was an article in uncut magazine it's also on their website where they talk about this record turning 50 but i also think that's 100 percent all uncut does is being like all right, what's the next milestone? Okay, we'll write an article about that. We're a magazine still that only talks about old music, so I don't know what else we can do. We're like Mojo. Mojo's the other magazine that does the exact same, like, talking about old music. So it's just kind of, that's the only thing I've seen is the the uncut 50th, which they were at the beginning of January, which that would make sense if the magazine's probably going to be on the shelves through through the actual anniversary, because the anniversary is the 7th, which as of this episode going up was yesterday. It's a week before on uh, our recording, but, but originally when we had looked it up, I think regular music said it was like the 24th of February. So I was like, Oh, okay, we're close to it. And now we're actually closer than I thought we would be. So like, but do you think it's 50 years later? How is it viewed? Is it, is it a classic or is it a classic just because it's one of the first three Stooges records? I mean, it, it probably has classic status just on the strength of Search and Destroy. Yeah. Uh, it's such an incredible song. And Gimme Danger is good. And the title track is good. And I Need Somebody is good. So Shake a Beal is good. So, But it's a lot of just good enough to make the record really good overall. But in terms of, like, you know, the band Legacy, it's such a disaster. <laughs> really in how it came together and how it was released. Uh, It's all over the place. It's kind of stylistically confused and partially because they had to write about, you know, they must write two ballads instead of being like a jammy art rock band. So it's kind of its legacy to me is maybe that it's just like a shaky step towards Iggy's solo career. There's you can can definitely see where he was going here and how he makes that transition. 
and then it's um you know ultimately not successful and the band breaks up and he like goes into recovery <laughs> and then the so there's this like length of time that then transpires before he like really debuts as a solo artist so what is what does the stooge what does the stooges mean <laughs> in 2023 to people you know like i can see the stooges means a lot to the first wave of punks because it was probably the first thing they could point to or one of the first things they could point to and go i want to do that you know and then you get your second wave that's where your thurston moores and your Kurt Cobain's like the people who grew up in a post punk and hardcore world being like, well, let's look to their influences. So you look at the Stooges and you go, oh, yeah, this band rules, too. So like they matter to that wave. Do they matter that much to generations after like the bands who started putting music out in the 2000s and 2010s? Like I personally don't see a huge Stooges impact on that kind of music made since then. I think the last big impact the Stooges had was on kind of the the Strokes era kind of bands of the the garage rock influenced post punk revival type of bands. They were definitely listening to the Stooges. Another one did pop in my head. Uh Fucked Up might be a very Stooges influenced band. They're at least influenced by like the garagey stuff from the 60s and 70s because they have a very garagey feel too yeah and damien abraham takes his shirt off a lot you know so there's he's got a history of shirtless <laughs> front men to go out go out to follow does i wonder if he still does uh maybe he's done it for so long yeah does he still do the take all of his clothes off i don't know that may have they may have stopped that one so yeah i can see fucked up being like the last bastion of the stooges yeah, it's a good question. Does Gen Z care about the Stooges? Would Gen Would Gen Z ever care about the Stooges? <sighs> the Stooges are an interesting case because they were a shock rock band in a lot of ways. I mean, Iggy's stage presence itself was, you know, self mutilation and nudity and smearing peanut butter on your chest and, and yeah, and being on heroin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, being 120 pounds intentionally starving yourself <laughs> to, to be in character uh the wig <laughs> the fact that it was a wig <laughs> too because is is he wearing a wig on the cover of this one because i think that's his hair on the first record but he had like brown hair like really yeah. stick brown hair and like then he went with the blonde hair but i think it was a wig at one point before it i guess he started dying it it looks kind of like a wig on that cover if you look at the raw power cover he looks like he's wearing eyeliner, too. It's yeah, like they tried to glam him up. He's got makeup on. Which is, was he wearing a lot of makeup live? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he started doing the makeup. He started out doing the white face, and then he stopped doing that, and then started doing more of a glam rock, you know, lipstick and eyeliner. I guess there's just not, a, I've not seen a ton of pictures of him doing that. But I also don't think I've seen a ton of pictures of the Stooges era, really. There's not a lot of great, clear pictures of his face. Yeah. And if he's been like playing and gyrating for an hour, then, you know, I'm sure it all rubbed off and melted off. I, I think that there is something about the Stooges that is appealing to a regressive, dangerous rock and roll idiot musician that <laughs> I I really don't want 
Um, because the thing about Iggy Pop is he's actually really smart. Yeah. Like he's a smart guy who knows how to make dumb music intelligently (laughs) in a way that dumb people can still enjoy. It's a very convoluted, um, trans translation process. It's kind of like a, it's like, a a game of telephone to go from smart to dumb to smart to dumb to smart to dumb (laughs) (laughs) that, that not a lot of people can do. And it got, I think a lot of the nineties shock bands took the wrong lessons from Iggy pop. Like I feel like a lot of Iggy's wildness is more self destructive than anything with the, you know, cutting his chest and all that stuff. I mean, he was a destructive stage personality. I do love the story that Henry Rollins and tells about was it? Yeah. Rollins band was opening for Iggy pop and the cure and the cure. The cure was the headliner. (laughs) And so then Iggy or so that Henry and Iggy have this competition between the two of them where they are like, we have to outdo each other on the stage and out crazy each other on the stage. And so like Henry did this like huge, like he went the most over the top he possibly could have. And then, like, the funny story is, like, after the after, like, Rollins fan plays and it's like Iggy's turn to go on, he like passes Henry Rollins like or his dressing room and he goes, fucker, and just like <laughs> keeps walking. And then he goes out and he tops Henry and like starts smashing all of the potted plants that the, <laughs> that are there for the cure, the flowers. It's a performance, though. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Iggy Pop is like kind of he's like self-deprecating about how like about himself and he's deferential to to other musicians you know the other members of the stooges like he's always says really positive things about what the other musicians were doing he doesn't really inflate his own like involvement and he even admits where he's like i remember it this way but like maybe ron i think ron remembers it a different way and i don't i don't really know and i don't really care like i don't need to have a you know a claim over this or that idea um he he has self-awareness that's very unusual for the kind of like gross and dirty and drugs kind of rock and roll that they made and that has kind of been his image ever since yeah i wanted to mention that like he has this like his persona and character is the wild rock and roll drugs rock and roll guy like that's his thing but like he got clean fairly early like yeah into his career and honestly i feel like the stooges only grew in popularity due to iggy pops like popularity over time and all of that is like a post recovery like iggy pop so it's interesting he still has the reputation of being the dangerous wild man with sex drugs and rock and roll but like the drugs stopped a long time ago (laughs) yeah which is good and maybe that's why he is like the the figure that he is because he was able to be like ooh, i I cut that off early enough that now I can be like, I can kind of control what I do, you know, and still have this like well-regarded like persona and personality. And yeah, it is interesting. He's he in a lot of ways, Henry Rollins has mimicked Iggy Pop's career by doing acting and being a persona more so than a though. Iggy put out a shitload of music and Henry stopped after the 2000s. but. Which is output became the spoken word thing. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what a 2023 Gen Z punk thinks of Iggy Pop. 
you might play some songs for them and they'd be like this song rules and like that's probably the extent of it you know yeah i don't think many people are invested in the story and the the image yeah it's like oh you mean that guy in all those jim jarmusch movies (laughs) (laughs) yeah 50 years later it's an impressive record that it even exists but the chaos of the recording process, the mixing process, the release, it just was it was it was viewed as a failure. The record topped out at like number 183 on the Billboard 200, but it was only there for like three weeks. It was not a long lasting record. They would break up in 74. The Stooges would reunite in 2003 and Ron moved back to guitar and they added Mike Watt to play bass in the band, which I don't think I realized Mike Watt was in the Stooges. Yeah. Is he on the weirdness, the 2007 album? Yes. And Steve McKay actually gets to record on that record. Uh, which yeah, is, the, the sax player. I felt like mentioning like Steve McKay was in the band in 73, not on this record. Yeah. yeah. He's on Funhouse, but yeah, he's not, he's not on this record. There's no horns on this record. Yeah. It was Iggy, Ron, Scott and Mike Watt. So James was not involved with this record and then ron passed away in 2009 and then i think james comes back and they do ready to die in 2013 yeah it's scott mike watt james williamson and steve mckay on that record too james williamson uh should be mentioned has has really not done a lot of other things musically contributing to some other stuff with iggy pop um this is a funny story in Wales uh, continued to work with pop on the initial se- sessions of for soldier from 1980 in Wales. He brandished an air pistol and began to drink vodka heavily <laughs> uh, and had a squabble with Iggy pop and David Bowie. And that's kind of like where he dips out. Um, but he has spent more of his life uh, developing microchips. <laughs> He's a tech guy. Yeah. He's a tech bro. That's funny. Uh, so he helped cutify Blu-ray. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. He's big in tech. Yeah. Probably bigger in tech than music. But yeah. Uh, 2009, it said uh, Pop announced the band's plans to continue performing with James Williamson returning his guitar. Pop stated that although the Stooges died with Ron Ashton, there is still Iggy and the Stooges, which I guess is a fun little distinction. That record is tagged Iggy and the Stooges. Um. The band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010, which is wild because there's so many bands who are not inducted who I feel like should be <laughs> the MC5. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then so they did Ready to Die in 2013 and Scott Ashton passed away in 2014. Heart attack at age 64. And then uh, Steve McKay passed away in 2015 at 66. Then uh, Williamson said in 2016, they made like an official statement because I guess they were like they didn't make any statements after they only did that 2013 tour and then they didn't do anything afterward. But Williamson finally was like, oh, yeah, uh, the Stooges are over. Uh, He's like, everybody's dead except Iggy and I. So it'd be kind of ludicrous to try and tour as Iggy and the Stooges when there's only one Stooge in the band and then you have side guys. That doesn't make any sense. And also Williamson also added that touring had become boring. And trying to balance the band's career as well as Pops was a difficult task. It's boring to go on tour with Iggy Pop. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me to my Blu-rays. <laughs> so yeah, the Stooges are done. 
they'll never come back, unfortunately. But Iggy Pop's still cranking out music, including one in January of 2023. It's a very interesting career. 50 years later, yeah, it's it's fun. I, I'm I'm glad we did this. I'm glad we did a, uh, a 50th retrospective. The only other 50-year-old album that I would consider would be New York Dolls, and I don't really want to do that because I listened to that record and it's not great. It's okay. I wouldn't get as much out of it. Um, but I am thinking about looking at other anniversary years and seeing like, oh, wow, this is the year that, you know, something turned 20, you know, just to, just to see. But uh, what, uh, if I had to give it a rating, let's do, let's do the five-star scale. I'm going to go, man, Search and Destroy is so good. But I don't, and I don't actively dislike anything besides Penetration. And even then, it's not like a super dislike. So I would go, I'd give it maybe a 3.75, maybe a 3.5. I don't know how often I'm going to come back to this album, though. So maybe a 3.5. Yeah, there's a reason it is the one Stooges record I know the least. It's the Mm -hmm. one I've come back to the least. Uh, It just isn't fully there. It It was too hectic of a production. Yeah, I think it 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 learned it earned a legendary status for being part of the trilogy of original records and one of the earlier records that influenced punk music. So it's a well-earned legacy record, I think, like you said earlier, for Search and Destroy alone. It deserves all the legacy recognition. But yeah, it I'm not a huge like Stone uh, Stooges you know, listener anyway, so. All right. Well, I think that will do it for us. Love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating or a review. Get at us on all the social medias. Call us and leave us a voicemail about this record, 202-688-PUNK. Any of that. Any of that. Fun stuff. Uh, We love to hear from everybody. And uh, thank you for listening to the show, and we'll see you next time.